We're speaking today with Laura Secor. She's the author of Children of Paradise, The Struggle for the Soul of Iran. She's in conversation with us today at Hazlitt. Welcome. Thank you. Your book is a lush and detailed story about a conversation Iranians have been having for generations about what kind of society they want to live in. What was the starting point for you with wanting to tell this story? I started traveling to Iran in 2004, and I have to admit that my first impulse to go there was, in a sense, perverse. It was a country that felt like it was forbidden. It was a place that most Americans didn't go and that we had received a lot of um, of negative ideas about. And I wanted to know what was behind that curtain and to understand the place on its own terms and not as I felt like a lot of us did as a sort of as a foreign policy problem to be solved or as as a place that existed in relation to us. So when I went in, I was curious to know about the life of the country and what um, continued to strike me as I talked to Iranians about the stories of their lives was the compression of the history of the last 30 years, the sense that so much had happened in such a short time, and it was such a dramatic history, and it had it had penetrated the lives of individuals at every level. So I kind of, I kept thinking about um, the people I met as, in a way, characters in an epic novel, and I was captivated by that story and the way that it threaded itself through those lives. And so you're you're thinking about Iran in a way that's different from the kind of narrative that you're getting from whatever media you're consuming about Iran. How do you start to try and get past what you already know or think about that country? To begin with, by talking to people and by listening to stories, trying to map them against historical events. And you know, one of the things that's difficult about researching Iran is that there is a really vast literature on that country. A lot of it is scholarly. Um, and it's really rich. There's a lot that we can and should know about Iran from that literature. But it's not generally accessible to a sort of a broad readership. So one of the things that I tried to do was to, um, was to do a lot of reading and try to understand the intricacies of the political history, um, but then to lift up a little bit away from them and create a map that I could then hold against the lives of the people I was talking to. So we could sort of say, you know, where were you when this happened? <laughs> and where were you when that happened? And I started to see that there were sort of common points of intersection of these narratives that made um, the history come out in more relief. Um, but to me, it was really important for the book to be able to tell people's stories in intimate detail because... I think that's how we get close to a place. The history feel, can feel vast and alienating, particularly when it's of a place that's really far away and whose history is in many ways very different from our own. Um, so I tried to use that intimacy to bring readers into the lives of Iranians and into the life of, of Iran. Um, but at the same time, I really found that that frame of reference, because we're missing it, had to be supplied. Children of Paradise is focused on the intellectual push and pull from which the modern Iranian state emerged. In the Western narrative of Iran, the modern state is understood as coming out of a series of mostly violent events. How do you reconcile those two realities, this sort of intellectual tradition that you've been referring to, and then this way that we've understood it as, as sort of being this this convulsing of violence? I think there are... Um... I think both are true. And I, I was really um, interested in the story of ideas in this history because Iran is a culture that really um, 
in Iran, ideas are taken seriously in a way that they aren't always here in the West. And one of the things that I um, that I felt strongly was that this kind of language of abstraction is really a native one in Iran. The sort of literary and intellectual forms that are most powerful in the culture are poetry and philosophy. So to see how closely um, those literatures tracked with people's psyches and with the psyche of the country, in a sense, was really fascinating to me. And I felt an important part of Iran's story that's often missed. And that's um, not to say that ideas ever function in a vacuum. And ideas are connected in some ways to violent events. And they certainly are in Iran. So um, while I think it's it's definitely true that, and I think the book also does document a lot of convulsive events, um, there is also this kind of this other architecture that I wanted readers to understand and to see um, in order to better know the country and to better understand what was motivating those events. You referred earlier to this idea of the compression of history. And I'm wondering, you know, given that we're sort of in this phase of, of the West trying to get to know Iran or, or maybe get to know again the new Iran or a new, newer version of it, how do you think that compressed history is going to be understood outside of Iran? I don't think that's for me to say. <laughs> um, well, do you think it's yeah. even possible to understand that? Um, I think that if we pay attention, it is. I think it requires, it, you know, so one of the things that is sometimes very difficult to um, to persuade people of is that we really do need to understand the events inside foreign countries on their own terms. There is a sort of impatience, at least in um in my country, with that kind of reporting, we kind of want to know well, what does this have to do with American foreign policy and with our next policy decision. And um, I haven't really, I haven't written that book. <laughs> um, my, I believe that we need to, that we need to engage with the interior life of countries that if we wish to understand them. And that doesn't mean that we need to get involved in their internal politics, but to at least know what motivates them and where they come from and what the history is, I think is is significant for anyone who's seeking you know, engagement and broader understanding. Early in your book, you talk about the story of the little black fish. Can you tell us about that story? <laughs> it's funny. The first time I heard about that story was from one of the reformists who had been a revolutionary who said that the the piece of literature that brought him to the revolution, that made him a revolutionary, was a children's story called The Little Black Fish. So I went to the library and found that story. And when I had finished reading it, I wanted to throw the book across the room because I could not understand at that point, very early in my research, what this story had to do with a revolution. <laughs> and it's a story that was written by a secular, um, I guess, secular leftist writer in the 60s um, that tells, it's a parable that's told through animals, which is common in Iranian fiction and poetry. Um, the main character is a little black fish who lives in a very small pond, a stream, I guess, and decides that he believes that there is a world beyond this stream and that he wants to explore it. And everyone tells him, you're crazy. There is no world beyond this stream. This is where life begins and ends. But he insists on exploring it, and he goes through a number of trials and adventures on his way out to the open sea, where in the open sea there is a school of brave fish like himself who have made this quest, and they are so strong that they can drag the fisherman's net to the bottom of the sea. Um, but he gets there finally and reaches his freedom, 
and then winds up sacrificing himself for the freedom of another fish. And in the end of the story, he dies. So this is not really the kind of children's story that would be typical in um, in my country. <laughs> it's It's got a rather dark um, cast to it. But it contains themes that I later realized just resonated again and again with the history and the and the mentality in a way of um, of revolutionary movements in Iran. And it's a story that is about refusing to be bounded by sort of some received idea of one's fate or destiny. It's a story about free will and it's a story about sacrifice and um it was at the time that it was published, it was, I guess, 1968. Um, one of the things that's also very haunting about the story is that the author of it drowned. Um, he was uh, fishing, I think. No, not fishing. He was he was on vacation, and he stepped into this river with very rapidly coursing um, currents, and he didn't know how to swim, and there was for a while a rumor that he had been killed by the Shah's secret police. Nobody could really verify that. Um, but the fact that he that he drowned became part of the myth of the story and the author. Um, so to me, the story, at first, I didn't understand it. And as I, and the more time I spent on this book and on the lives of the people I met, the more it seemed to resonate with everything <laughs> that I found. And one of the things that, it, you know, I, I bring it back again at the very end of the book because one of the themes of the book is this persistence of a very dynamic civic spirit in Iran under very unpromising circumstances. Again and again, you see, um, you see people emerging who are willing to put themselves at risk in order to make a better life for their countrymen. And that becomes sort of a, um, it's a source of wonder to me in many ways and of really of awe. And at the very end of the book, in the final section, I introduce a character who is kind of a, um, also an avatar for the women's movement in Iran. The women's movement really takes wing at a time when so many other movements have been crushed, but these people um, kind of come forward and take on some of the most obdurate parts of the establishment, the judiciary. And I really, at that time, started to think about that woman who I introduced in that section. Her name is Asia Amini as the little redfish, the one who kind of picks up this this journey at a time when others have abandoned it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, um, several years ago, I was in Kabul, and I ended up at a conference um, basically on, on women political participation. And it, it was an international conference. And the representatives were all from Muslim majority countries, and the the, the rep from Iran, um, she was an Islamic scholar, and you know, and and it was an interesting um, thing for me to see that. So her point was she was talking about um, Islamic law, and how women in Iran had used um, Islamic law as a way to move themselves forward, but. But it was incremental. But if you saw the shift that had happened in the previous three decades, um, that there had been profound advances that women had been able to make by contesting and engaging with this um, particular aspect of, of the Iranian system, which on the outside is perceived as, as monolithic um, and unchanging. And so how do you see that from from mm -hmm. inside Iran? What what has that engagement been like, and and is it is it an engagement that people in Iran are are generally well aware of? 
Uh, yeah, first of all, nothing is monolithic and unchanging in Iran. That's one of the interesting things about the Islamic system in that country. It's got a lot of different pressure points and places where you can, where you can um, kind of tug on a string that makes something happen over here. And it's a very, um, it's a very dynamic place, which doesn't mean that there aren't also some pretty um, hard and fast barriers to how much can be accomplished and how fast. Um, the women's movement is really variegated. It's not, um, it's not easy to sort of describe a single strategy or a single um, approach to taking on some of the, um, some of the issues. And there is certainly, there's part of it that is legalistic. There's part of it that has concentrated on, on lobbying in a sense um, to get laws changed. There's part of it that has been focused on the society. There's the Million Signatures campaign, which um, involves it, women basically hand-to-hand, behind closed doors, distributing pamphlets that delineate the discriminatory laws um, and sort of educate other women and get their signatures on a petition with the aim of collecting a million signatures. Um, the person I've profiled in the book is Asia Amini, and she um, her focus was on juvenile execution to begin with and then eventually on stoning. And these issues are not, they don't only affect women, um, but they do have a disproportionate effect on women. So there's really all kinds of ways, I think, that the women's movement has um, has approached sort of the systemic discrimination in Iran. I also think that Iran kind of gets a, there's, I think we have an idea in our minds of Iran as being a particularly repressive place for women. And while that is true, it's also probably by regional standards, it's a very dynamic place for women. And you do see if you travel to Iran, you see women in every kind of public role. And that's something that may not be true in some of the other neighboring countries. In talking about the state that emerged after the Islamic Revolution of 1979, you write, quote, it emerged in impassioned, ambivalent dialogue among passionate, ambivalent people. And the state it produced is passionately ambivalent, too. What do you mean by passionately ambivalent? <laughs> yeah, I think of Iran as sort of um, straddling a very profound fault line, both culturally and politically. It's a country that is kind of defined by and driven by its divisions. And those divisions even run through individual people. At least that's what I found in a lot of my um, research and in the people that I profile in the book. And at the very beginning, the revolutionary impulse is a really divided and interesting impulse. It's not a unitary, I think we think of it as well, there was this revolution that produced an Islamic theocracy, therefore it was a revolution for Islamic theocracy. It was not. It was a um, a really diverse movement that included um, people who were leftists and people who were liberals and nationalists, but it also included, even among the Islamists, that kind of, the Islamism that drove it was um, was a really dynamic and variegated force at that time. The thinker who I profile mainly from that period is Ali Shariati, who is interesting because what he does is he takes the language and the concerns and the commitments of the left and he marries them to Islam. And that becomes a really potent force because in Iran you had a, um, a secular left that was largely urban and educated. And then you had, um, well, there were, and this is complicated and it's dealt with in the book, but the... Um, the country has a had at that time a pretty serious urban-rural divide, 
And in the countryside, you had a lot of traditional people who were at that time migrating into cities and finding themselves cheek by jowl with these urban secular elites who they didn't understand and who they felt looked down on them. What Shariati's ideas did was, in a sense, they gave the revolutionary impulse back to the traditional people, and they gave and it gave Islam back to the urban elites. And it, in a sense, unified the country for a moment behind that idea. So suddenly, if you were a traditional religious person, you were not some rube from the countryside to be looked down upon. You were the revolutionary vanguard. And according to Shariati, it was not that Islam was compatible with revolutionary impulses. It was that leftist revolutionary ideology actually originated in Islam. <laughs> so that was a really powerful way of thinking. But it was also, in a sense, it had, a, it had its own sort of inbuilt ambivalences because he was reconciling a lot of things that did not spring from a single source. And there was always, I think the sort of cliche, which I hesitate to use, but I can never get away from it, is that Iran is a country torn between tradition and modernity. Um, I don't really much like that because I don't think tradition is one thing and I don't think modernity is one thing. And I don't think that they're necessarily pulling against each other. But in some sense, um, the sort of intellectual and political project after the revolution was to create a uniquely Iranian vision of modernity that could enfold the traditions that were also indigenous to that country. And that's a conversation that's still ongoing. Yeah. And so how, I mean, one of the things that that's difficult to, um, I guess, to disentangle is um, whether it's, um, whether the politics have been Islamicized or if Islam has been politicized. And is there, I mean, is that even a conversation worth having when it comes to Iran? That's a really interesting question. I feel, and I, I don't know, um, I feel that the more time I've spent on Iran, the less I think that any of this is about religion. <laughs> I think that it's really a story of politics. And in many ways, the revolutionary state, although at first blush, the world looked at it and said, my God, this is medieval fanaticism. Actually, it was a very modern state that the revolution produced. And the kind of autocracy and repression that it produced is very familiar. The techniques of it and the shape of it. Over time, one thing you see in the early revolutionary years is even Ayatollah Khomeini slowly becoming more and more pragmatic in his approach to politics and to the world. And this pragmatism is a very big piece of the Islamic Republic's outlook. So it's kind of, um, well, you don't want to say that it's, that it's certainly not a secular state, and it certainly is a state that... Um, that has made a very special place for Islamic jurisprudence and for um, Islamic morality. <laughs> but it is um, a system that's also actually more familiar than not, and that does not, I don't think, need to be understood in religious terms. From the outside, Westerners tend to see Iran as a static state with an unchanging ideology. What kind of shift has there been in how Iran's leaders and intellectuals see the project of the theocratic state? I think that from the very beginning, um, the theocratic state was never totally static because it had built into it this kind of, um, it had contestation built into it, whether it meant to or not. The, you know, the constitution of the Islamic Republic came out of compromise and conflict. There were, on the one hand, these sort of 
Islamic nationalist liberals who were in the government at that time who presented a draft constitution that looked like the French Fifth Republic. And then you had clerics, on the other hand, who said, no, this won't do. We need to include a dimension um, of clerical rule. <laughs> so these two dimensions were brought together from the very start into a kind of contradictory document. And that has produced a um, it's produced a set of contradictions that make it impossible to eliminate dynamism from the system as hard as they've tried, <laughs> because the theocratic elements of the state, no question, are stronger than the Republican elements. They ultimately control the security apparatus, the judiciary, the foreign policy, a lot of the most um, definitive levers of the state. But what they have not been able to do is eliminate dissension within their own ranks or within the ranks of the larger bureaucratic government that includes the Republican elements. So it's been really interesting over even the last 10 years when we've had um, a very a very open contest between the more autocratic elements of the regime and the more Republican elements to see that even when the conservatives hold all of the offices, they still wind up producing dissent. And you still wind up with factions that are critical of the, um, of the system as a whole in some ways. So I think that is... Um, in a way, the the fate that the country set itself when it adopted that constitution. And it's something to be grateful for. And you know, one thing I, um, a couple of years ago, was assigned to review a couple of books, one that was a history of the revolution and of the late Shah period, and the other that was a history of the Islamic Republic. And as I was reading these books, I was thinking, there was a sense that we as Americans, we knew Iran under the Shah because we were close to the Shah's court. And so these any history you read of that period has this kind of has granular detail about the inner workings of government. But after the Islamic Revolution, I think we imagine that we don't know Iran anymore. It's receded. It's become an unknowable place. But if you look at any history of the Islamic Republic, it is actually so much richer in terms of its connection to the society. So much more is visible. Because the Islamic Republic, which is no less autocratic than the Shah's regime, still has somehow created a space where the currents that actually move through the society can bubble up to the surface and be seen. And so in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's in keeping with the tradition that you've already laid out where there has been this constant engagement with ideas. Yeah. And so... Then how so? How do you explain that? I mean, when you're when you're out and about in your in your life as a journalist, and people are talking to you about Iran, and you're talking to people about Iran, is it a matter of convincing people that this is actually what's happening there, and not this this sense of of sort of static and 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 sort of um, you know immovable ideas? I suppose I like to think that our ideas about Iran have changed in the last. 10 to 12 years to some degree. I think, you know, there was this reformist period between 1997 and 2004 when President Mohammad Khatami was trying to open up the country. And at that point, there was a lot of press about the dynamism of Iranian society. And then things kind of skewed to a different side where the image of Iran was, well, this is a place where there's really a free press and people are very active and engaged and young people are yearning for connection with the world. Um, and that, too, was a skewed impression because that movement was up against some very hard forces of repression that were often not also brought into that frame. Um, and then under Ahmadinejad, I think we swung back the other way and started to look at Iran again as a sort of hardline monolith. So I think it's um, when I talk to people about my work, I find a real a pretty wide variety of um, of impressions that they've gleaned from 
the news and from other sources or maybe even their friends with Iranian backgrounds because there are increasing numbers of Iranians in the United States and, as you know, even more in Canada. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't want to be overly... Um, I don't want to overly generalize about what people think about a country that they haven't seen. But, um, but I do hope that my work is useful in bringing readers and ordinary people into contact with the sophistication and diversity and dynamism of that culture. Your book is a series of portraits of Iranians who engaged in various ways with the revolution. And then you sort of go on to see what became of them. You talk about a man named Akbar Ganji, who started out as a true believer, but within a decade had lost his fervor. You summed up his views as, quote, in a religious state, religion became vulnerable to the vagaries, the antagonisms of politics. To criticize the state was to criticize Islam. Iran has the same Islam it's always had. Well, not always had, but let's say that Islam has always been part and parcel of that conversation since the revolution. But Iran has, as you've just alluded to, made a variety of political decisions um, and, and taken a variety of political pathways. So how true do you think that 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 that, that idea that Akbar Ganji put forward, how true is that still? Well, I think what he was getting at with that idea was not then that he... you couldn't criticize the state because it would be to criticize Islam, but that in order to make sense of this problem, you had to think about Islam in a, in a different frame. And I think he and some of the other reformists that were connected to a philosopher who's featured in the book, Abdul Karim Sarush, a lot of their efforts were focused on removing religion from this kind of worldly interplay of um, of conflict and politics and saying, look, religion is not besmirched by these things. It's not touched by them. Religion, the thing itself, is ineffable. It's, it is, um, in a sense, unknowable. And everything that we have built around it is only human. And therefore, we can argue about it and we can interpret it and rediscover it and disagree about it. And this was a, a radical thing to do philosophically. And Ganji was a follower of Sarush's and, um, and I think he, in the end, that was the view that he came to that allowed him to be critical of the state without being critical of his religion. He's a very religious man. So um, that was sort of the innovation, in a sense, of the intellectual reform movement was to take this inner core of religion and try to protect it from the accretions of ideology and politics, which was, in a sense, the opposite of what Shariati did. Shariati took religion and tried to make of it an all-encompassing ideology. As Sarush, I think it was Sarush himself who put it this way, Shariati wanted to make religion corpulent, and he wanted to make it small. And so when it comes to the state itself, I mean, is the, does the state take dissent? I mean, we know how it treats dissent, but does it, does it understand dissent against the state as being uh, related to religion? Oh, well, yes. So that's what I've described for you is the reformist point of view, which is sort of which has now fallen into the opposition. But the state itself does use religion in this way. The state itself does um, stipulate I, there, the problem with dissenting in Iran is that you can always become you can always fall into the category of being accused of apostasy or um of waging war against God or of various formulations that turn dissent into an act of um, of religious warfare. And that becomes, um, that falls into a punitive category that is that can be quite severe. So 
Yes, the state, uh, part of its power lies in its assumption of its own identity with religion and, and really, you know, divine right. How useful are terms like reform, moderate, conservative? How useful are these terms when, when you're talking about Iran? They're useful if you know what they mean. But the trouble is that they've been kind of evacuated of meaning in the, in the foreign press in a lot of ways, not, not intentionally. But I think that American readers certainly have a hard time distinguishing among them. Because the spectrum of political thought in Iran does not match ours one-to-one or really in any other ratio, um, it's hard to talk about left and right. It's hard to talk about moderate and conservative without defining those terms. There are definitions for those terms. Moderate, less so. I have a problem with moderate because it doesn't really describe anything that can be um, fixed to a political category in Iran. But, um, But certainly there is a spectrum of political factions that you can look at and clearly delineate. But the trouble is that our terms and our political vocabulary doesn't totally fit it, and it doesn't automatically signify what we want it to signify when we talk about the Iranian spectrum. So when you are talking about the, the spectrum of political opinion, that, um, I mean, there's there are always going to be marginal voices on either end. But in general terms, even when you make re- reference to reformists mm-hmm. in the current context, is the understanding, um, is the under, it, it, are the parameters still that, 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 um, that Islam is to play an integral role in politics? Or are people li- seriously, are people, um, able to talk about the idea of separating religion from politics and still be taken seriously in the Iranian political context? The Iranian political context is religious and if you're talking about electoral politics and the kind of politics that can legally and um, substantially be a part of the political playing field, that has to fall under the provisions of the Constitution. And the Constitution includes um, clerical leadership and it includes religious law. So to very directly criticize those things puts you in a kind of dangerous space. Now, the reformist movement, which emerged really in the 90s, came to fruition with the presidency of Mohammad Khatami and was essentially crushed in 2009 with the Green Movement. Um, That movement always defined itself as an internal movement for incremental democratic reform. It did not explicitly take on the religious structure of the state or its nature. But even that movement, which was incremental and... um, internal and really an insider's movement, even that movement after 2009, when it very directly clashed with um, Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, and the Revolutionary Guards and so on, when it took those forces on, after that it was labeled the sedition and placed outside the pale of um, allowable opinion. The reform movement still exists. That's very clear in the behavior of the state. There's a sense that there is still a destabilizing force called reform that's out there. But it is not really, um, it's not in the same way that it was a part of the of the allowable electoral landscape. Um, in terms of when you talk to ordinary people or people who have, um, I think the, the question of um, religion and the state runs more deeply through the society and that there is, um, there are a lot of people who, Iran is still a very religious country and a lot like the United States. And I think that there is um, 
a rather broad constituency for a politics that is not theocratic, but um, but even so, probably it would have a sort of, um, I don't know how to put it, sort of like in the United States, religious people would be elected to a representative government. <laughs> you so beautifully illustrate the contraction and expansion of the idea of modern Iran. It's rigorously debated within the country. How challenging is it for Iranians to engage in that debate about the relationship between what what I guess what the what the vision of the country was and where they want it to go. Um, I think it's gotten more challenging, not because that debate isn't still alive and not because it doesn't still resonate, but because the space for um, for discussing it is not very open. And under Khatami, what we saw was this momentary opening of the press, which really allowed for a very um, deep and um, serious debate over the future of the country. And it also allowed for a just surge of civic engagement. And you could see that how much hunger there had been for that, for young people who wanted to be invested in the future of the country and making things better. And they got involved in things, not just debating the role of mosque and state, but uh, which I don't think many of them felt comfortable doing at that time, but, but, but they got involved in everything from, you know, um, from, supporting the rights of women and children and minorities in the provinces to um, laying poison for rats on blighted streets of Tehran <laughs> to um, opening up hotlines for family counseling. <laughs> they really got involved in improving life in their country. And that movement, sadly, got rather violently crushed. But I never believed that it went away, first of all, because a lot of people... A lot of young people kind of um, earned their chops in those days as journalists or as um, community organizers and, and so forth. There were a lot of people who um, entered the world of, of work and activism at that time and whose skills and commitments were shaped by it. And there's also a sense that I think is um, is ongoing that... Iranians want to be involved in shaping the future of their country. So I think, you know, it's it's hard to totally assess. I haven't been there myself since 2012, so that's part of what is um, inhibiting me. <laughs> but um, I think you can see almost always below the surface this kind of rippling of, um, I don't want to say dissent because it's not just dissent. It's of um, engagement and sense of, of wanting to be in charge of their own and their country's future. Now that Iran is being cautiously welcomed back, what are the preoccupations internally about how Iran will hold its own internationally? Again, I'm not, I'm not there to assess that, but my sense is that this is a really delicate and important moment for the Islamic Republic. And on the one hand, this opening presents a lot of opportunity. Um, if you look at it from sort of two sides, you have on the one hand the hardliners the, and the sort of the deep state that Ayatollah Khamenei is at the head of, which does have a sort of um, guiding ideological 
commitment to anti-Americanism and to maintaining Iran's um, independence and its status as a bulwark against imperialism. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the Rouhani team, which is much more pragmatic and sees Iran's bread buttered perhaps on a different side. Um, so these forces have not really come to a stable equilibrium. And one thing that we're going to see is how they manage that. Um, because I think there's a sense that this this opening, there's no doubt about it, it's perceived as positive inside Iran. Um, and if the sanctions are lifted and there is a period of economic recovery in Iran, because Iran has been through a lot economically um, in the past decade or so. Um, so if you see a real positive economic benefit from uh, reconciling in a sense, with the Western powers over the nuclear deal. And if you see a um, Iran being welcomed back, at least to some extent, into the community of nations and having a more, um, and having a role that is less antagonistic in world bodies and so on, I think that's going to be perceived very positively by the populace, which has really for a long time, you know, one of the words that you just always hear in Iran, and I guess also elsewhere in the Middle East, is dignity. And there is this is this is a great moment for the restoration of Iranian dignity on the world stage. So that's something that probably everybody would like to take credit for, you would think. But there is some concern, I think, too, for the hardliners that they don't want to see Rouhani's people taking all the credit for that. And they also don't want to see Iran becoming overrun by Western influence. And I think that's a very a very real concern to them. They have a lot of um, of fear of what that would mean and how that might weaken um, their their hold on the levers of power. So, I think there is right now a very real clash of internal forces in Iran, and we don't know what the outcome of that is going to be, and either for foreign policy or for domestic. The the idea of dignity, um, restoring dignity or maintaining dignity. There's a, you know, there, there's a real strong sense uh, here. Uh, Canada has just been through a, a truth and reconciliation process with its Aboriginal people, and and that's that's part of the conversation around dignity is is reckoning with your past. Mm. And I'm wondering, do you have any sense of that? Like, you know, you you make reference in your book to the to the infamous summer of 1988, mm -hmm. um, the two months where the state carried out thousands of executions and and there are a variety of stories like that. Do you think that this this restoration of dignity is going to be connected to that kind of reckoning in any way? Sadly, I don't. I think it, that for that kind of reckoning to happen, and I do think that kind of reckoning is ultimately going to be very, very necessary to national healing. <laughs> um, but I don't think that this opening, this the resolution of the nuclear file and the lifting of sanctions and the, this sort of international picture, I don't think that this is really going to have any impact on that. I think for that to happen, that requires a much um, deeper and uh, more dramatic shift. And I don't really see that happening under Ayatollah Khamenei. Can you um, give us some sense of, of what was that like the first time that you went to visit Iran just in terms of your own experience there, what did you see? What was it like? Um, I went to Iran 
in the fall of 2004, before I ever went as a journalist, I went as a tourist. And, um, and that was in some ways wonderful because I got a much longer visa than I would ever get as a journalist. And I was able to travel and to see, um, a lot of the country. And it was really a, it was revelatory in a lot of ways. It was also very frustrating because, um, even tourism in Iran at that time, at least was pretty heavily managed. And, there was a lot I couldn't see and a lot of people I couldn't talk to. But I went back in the summer of 2005 on a reporting trip for The New Yorker, and that was to cover the election, presidential election that brought us Ahmadinejad. And that trip was really the one that kind of that burst the whole place open for me. And in some ways, it would never have happened that way if I hadn't also gotten to see the country from a different perspective earlier. But in 2005, um, I really got to talk to a lot of people and to see the country in a moment of um, of real political uh, interest. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's a... I wish I could say that it was... that it's the kind of place that you set foot in and you immediately fall in love. <laughs> and in some ways, it really should be because it has everything and there's no place more interesting in the world and it's culturally rich and it's beautiful and the food is great and people are hospitable and all of that is true. It's also a really difficult and um, in many ways unpleasant place to be. And so it's, I found it to be a really complex experience. Um, I'd never really worked or traveled in a place that felt so, um, that, felt so repressive and that had as much tension running through it. So that was something I wasn't totally prepared for and that was, and that made a big impression on me. But um, that combination of there being so much of, of interest and beauty below the surface and of the surface being so hard to crack um, was kind of irresistible. The idea of living in a revolutionary society mm -hmm. Is that still a sentiment that is that that um, that sits on the surface mm -hmm. in Iran? Um, not exactly, in the sense that the revolution. Yes, for a lot of people who were born after 1979, and that is now a lot of the population, the revolution belongs to their parents and not to them. But that's still living history. It's very much alive history, <laughs> and I think that. Um, one thing the revolution did that has been very interesting for Iran is that it gave people a sense of ownership over the state, even though the state kind of slipped their grasp very quickly. So there's a sense, I think, that might be special of a state that ought to belong to its people and that has that rightly belongs to its people. And that kind of that fuels some of the um, at least among the opposition, the anger that the state does not seem to be responsive to its people. So I think that that is um, one of the legacies of revolution and that sense of agency and of the rightfulness of agency, whether or not it plays out in, in reality. In terms of the revolutionary experiment itself, you know, I think that one of the things that is worth emphasizing is just how unique the state is that that revolution produced and that for Iranians to try to figure out how to navigate this system that they created after 1979 and how to um, 
leverage it to produce the kind of society and, and atmosphere that they want to live in, they don't have models. They don't have other places to look to say this is how it's done. They are looking at their own um, structures and trying to understand them and to penetrate them. And it's a it creates a political discourse that is in some ways alienating for those of us on the outside. It seems like there's a cottage industry of specialists who are telling us what to think about Iran and how to understand its politics because we can't sort of, we can't look at a frame of reference that feels familiar and, and understand it as anything um, like a, you know, parliamentary democracy. But I think that, um, yeah, that uniqueness is a legacy of the revolution as well. Well, it's, it's a brilliant and fascinating book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.